this time last year when we moved into the first lockdown, it was a really scary time for businesses in New Zealand and particularly um, probably small to medium businesses. We didn't, we'd never been through anything like this before. And it's, um, I guess at the time it was all, it was a day by day and in my business it was a day by day. We weren't sure about what it would look like at the end, uh, whether people would be using legal services the same way that they did at the moment and what would our staffing requirements be. And the whole thing was such a massively steep learning curve of dealing with things that people had never really dealt with before. Um, but I have to say, and for, for, for the legal profession anyway, it's... Um, all kind of working out okay um, because a lot of our work is New Zealand based and so we're not in the um, unviable position of um, being and relying on tourism or overseas companies, overseas uh, tourists etc coming to New Zealand. So there's been a lot of New Zealanders doing a lot of things in New Zealand and that's um, in changes to the law, the property market's been absolutely booming so all of those things have actually meant that we're okay but it has actually helped us become quite nimble so we've become a lot more um I guess technology focused thinking of different ways of of doing things with clients a lot more zoom meetings signing documents through DocuSign and other um other ways of signing documents where clients don't have to come into the office so that's been hugely beneficial and helpful as well so I guess that probably connects to it, but when you speak about the learning curve, can mm. you talk about any other lessons apart from the like this this nimbleness and the, and really really tapping into technology? But what were some of the other lessons that you took away from last year? I think to not to look too far into the future, but to also look far into the future. So I think the um, the the timelines that we used to think about you know what two years time and three years time and five years time is have become a lot shorter so I think it's more thinking around what's going to happen in the next six months what do we want this business to look like in, in 12 months so I think that everything's uh, become a lot shorter I think people people's emotions are much more heightened and so the world's getting faster, as we know, and clients' expectation or people's expectations—not just not just my clients, but people's ex expectations are higher. So I think because of those heightened emotions, we've had to really, um, really channel it into how how clients are feeling, how staff are feeling. It's been as an employer of nearly thirty people, um, that's also been a, a, a major challenge for me. In that, uh, it's not just um, they're looking to me for answers as well so it's like it's not just me thinking about oh my goodness what's going to happen next it's 30 other people looking at me and saying what's going to happen next Tammy what are we going to do next and so that that's also been uh, a, a learning curve for me and that I think it's made me really look at my leadership style and how I lead and this year I'm putting a lot more energy into that so a lot of um, getting some coaching and really thinking about how I lead rather than doing things on the fly. Mm. Probably a couple of things. I just want to go back to that anxiety uh, and and the emotion. Like if, if you compare March 2020 with March 2021, you know, uh, there's maybe different levels of uncertainty. We kind of know what we're grappling with in terms of this global pandemic. But what do you what do you make of the the levels of emotion and anxiety in terms of the um, maybe the staff that you're working with, but then also the clients that you're dealing with? Do you notice that there's still high emotion levels? Still very high emotion levels, but a slightly different kind of emotion to this time last year. I think this time last year, it was a real nervousness. Will I have a job? 
um, what you know what what will it look, look like after this? Will I have to reduce my hours? Am I not going to be paid so much? So it's, I think there was a lot more, uh, particularly in my business, a lot more of that kind of pressure. I, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to be, where it's going to end. Whereas at the moment, I think it's not so much that um, because the business has come through this relatively strong. It's more frustration and. Um, I mean, even myself at the beginning of last week when we went into that second lockdown, I went through that real roller coaster of disappointment, frustration, and then just annoyed. Mm. <laughs> and then you kind of get with it and you're kind of okay with it. And I think that's what staff and clients have been experiencing those same sorts of emotions as well. It's not so much the financial uncertainty, it's more the um, just. I, th I think this time last year, we, we were all banding together. We were all in it. We knew where we were at. We were doing our big lockdown and it was kind of almost a bit fun. Once we, you know, once you got past that emotion things, there were some good parts to it. This kind of, uh, where we are at the moment, I think people are just getting frustrated. We just want to move on, mm. get on with, get on with things. Is that, uh, does that connect to what you're talking about in terms of your development as a leader as well? And, you know, you spoke about not being so reactionary maybe, but is it about really being able to be more empathetic and tapping into that kind of emotional understanding as well? Is that, like, is leadership changing in that respect? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I've read a lot of Brene Brown's um, work and I really admire what she says. And I think that it is, she talks a lot about vulnerability um, and, as a leader, for me, that I've become more vulnerable. Whereas I think, and what what I mean by that is saying yes, I'm feeling that way too, as opposed to probably in the past, the leader was or, or someone in a leadership role, uh, kind of almost displayed that they had no emotions about those things, and you know we're just we're just trucking on and it's all going to be fine. And you still need to have that positivity and. Um, you know, the staff need to, um, I, I, well, I think as a leader that you need to have a degree of positivity and so, and reliability so people don't see you as an emotional roller coaster. But I think that it's important for you to say, I understand how you feel because I'm feeling a bit like that too. So mm. I think it is just being a bit more open and honest about, about where we're at as leaders. Um, and hopefully that develops more respect and, and um loyalty and understanding um yeah from staff is that a little bit out of left field for the legal profession because i don't know if there's a if there's a big <laughs> legacy of, of vulnerable lawyers are there no no there's not there's not and um i mean part of it i think is uh, you know the, the a female perspective if i'm being really honest is it can be slightly different we um it can be it's just it's just different sometimes it's that's one thing I've really strived for in my practice is to have that real openness with staff and clients for it not to be a place of intimidation um for clients to come in and think wow that was easy you know that's my biggest compliment when they say to me that was simple I, I didn't think it would be that hard and I think I think all of that combines to yeah quite a different feel to what law has traditionally been like where it's been mm. Um, people in suits and being quite buttoned up and no way would you be showing any emotion about anything um, on any front and even not thinking about COVID we had a client passed away last week not nothing to do with COVID at all I know the week before last actually and four of my staff were absolutely so upset whereas I think in the old days it was very much you know didn't show your emotion you were here just to do a job it was about the law rather than the people and I think that's changing.
And did you, did you find in the in in the early days of your career that you had to, to suppress certain, you know, certain parts of your of your personality? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you know, um, I've only worked in a in a couple of firms, but yeah, I think um, definitely, definitely. And those times were times when I was working in bigger practices and or a bigger practice and. I learned so much. And so I saw that as my training of my legal, um, of the way I, I think legally, whereas uh, the Davenport's where I've been now since 2004, this is more about how I then apply that legal training with the personality probably on top. Um, and so I often say to my staff, you can, you can Google the law, um, mm. but it's how we relate it to the client situation. And it's about the relationship with the client. That's, that's where I think we make a difference. What did, can you talk about? Can you talk about that relationship a little bit? Because I make small talk with my lawyer, and that's all nice, but I'm still very conscious of the six-minute blocks and that kind of thing, and it's very much still that that kind of relationship. Yeah. But is it, you know, when you're talking about that client relationship and you're talking about the the client that passed away and that kind of level of emotion around there, is that is there a is there actually a relationship there that's that's evolving between? Yeah, yeah, there is, and. Um, I mean, I'm a trust lawyer, and so a lot of what I do is dealing with families, and so I'm dealing with generations of families, and I'm seeing clients on quite a regular basis, but you get quite involved in their lives and their families, and and clients come in, and they give me a hug, and they, um, I don't know, it's just... Yeah, we're still charting six minute blocks <laughs> so we're still we're still doing that but I think it's about disarming the client and um, understanding that um, you know this this is not intimidating I'm just like you I have you know there's I've seen similar issues with some with other people and it, I, I kind of almost liken it to um, you know clients don't want a legal opinion or they don't want to be saying you could do this or you could do that and those are the risks you choose they often want to know what would you do and that's what I try to bring to my practice is by by giving them a little bit of what would I do if I was in your shoes and I liken it to when one of my children was four and I took him he was snoring really badly and the doctor specialist said that he needed his tonsils out and my husband said oh but he's never had a sore throat and I said to the doctor what would you do if it was your child mm. and that was that was the kind of advice I wanted I didn't want you could do this or you could do that. I wanted to know what he would do if it was his child. And that's that's what I bring to my practice with my clients. Um, and that helps develop that relationship because they see you as a person rather than just as a lawyer. Mm. And there's some really, uh, I was reading through some of your case studies and even even within the world of trust, I mean, there is a whole world of, of very different oh. scenarios related to that as well. And so some of your case studies will, will cover people who have started up a bakery, run a successful engineering company and then have, have issues with, uh, with with another generation of children and and that kind of thing. So very 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 broad. Um, do you find that you that you almost have to become a little bit of a psychologist as well along the way? Yeah, probably counsellor. Um, and sometimes people just want to. You, you've got to listen first, and I think that's also the difference with the way that we practice law here is that we don't jump to solutions. It's all about listening. So clients sometimes will have a fixed idea of what they want, but I sit down. Off, most often, I start my meetings with new clients with, "Tell me, just tell me about you. Tell me about your family. Tell me, tell me everything." And they they can just talk. And uh, for some of them, it's a real cathartic experience because they're just it's like, oh, and then. And then I can start, and my mind's kind of thinking about the things that 
you know, what, what we need to do here. So, yeah, you do, you do. Um, and I often refer clients to see a, a counsellor often because oh. they need they need more more help than what I, I can give them. But I can listen. I can listen. So, yeah, it is part counsellor. And, and, you know, given, as I said, the breadth of those different scenarios and the way that you might uh, you might be involved and you might help out, I mean, is there, a, is there a single kind of way to sum up what your purpose is and what your, what, what drives you every day? Um, I think it's, um, it's giving clients peace of mind. And so I will often say to clients, leave it with me. I can, you know, we can take care of that. You don't need to worry about what it looks like. You don't need to worry about what's coming next. We can take care of that for you. So if they can have the confidence in me and my team to deliver um, deliver on that, then that's, you know, that's that's kind of what drives me every day is really is to, is that help that we're giving people, not just from a legal sense, but on, on so many different levels in this kind of work. Just another psychological question as well, but um, so many, so many scenarios. Uh, I guess you would have to, you would have to really look at what happens in the worst case. So, you know, you might get, you might get people coming to you at, at a really exciting point in their life, where they're, they're, they're going off to start a new business, um, you know, getting married and buying property together and and building their empire. But part of you has to be kind of worried about the worst case scenario. Does that, do you find that that starts to seep into everyday life for you, and you're always looking at at worst scenario for stuff no not really because I'm actually um I'm actually a real I'm, I'm a very positive person so when I when I do look at the worst case scenario because that is my job that's exactly what I say to clients this is my job I'm so sorry I'm a lawyer I have to tell you what's <laughs> the worst thing that happen so I always frame it like that rather than being really worried and and um and so I do some relationship property work as well and often it's the kind of what we think of as prenuptial type arrangements um and I always say to clients, this is the worst, you know, these are your rules of things, the worst case scenario plays out. But then you sign it, you stick it in the bottom drawer and you forget forget about it and you live your life. And um, oh, probably, I'm sorry, I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but I but I often say to, to clients, you know, this is the legal advice, this is the life advice. Um, and so the legal advice has to be the, yeah, I've got to give you both sides of the story. I can't just give you the good news. Um, I have to give you what would happen in that worst case scenario as well. Mm. But you know, in my everyday life, I'm, I'm not looking for the worst case scenario all the time. Maybe, maybe just to go on a bit of that tangent. But do you think that there's that there's a lesson in there for, for everyday life anyway, regardless of whether it's you know a property agreement or a, or a trust? But just to have like whatever you're doing to have an understanding of the worst case scenario, have some sort of backup there for it, but then to go off and live your life. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's. Um, you, you have to know what we, what you would do. Um, and I think that makes you um, a more balanced person as well. If, if you've thought that through, um, you know, what, what, what's the worst that could happen? Would, was that something that, you know, when you go off and when you take the leap into your own firm, was that, was that a big, was that a big adjustment for you? Was that a big, a big leap and, um, no, I was quite young. I was only 32 when I became a partner at Davenport's um, and I was in partnership with, some, with someone who I'd known for a long time. He had been my first boss when I first left university and I was a bit lucky actually. Um, there was a partner that was um, exiting um, 
because he was retiring. And so I managed to buy into the practice at that point. And I was a bit lucky because I was with someone who was very experienced, uh, a very experienced lawyer and experienced in, in being a partner in a law firm. Um, that went through a couple of iterations. And then seven years ago, I bought out a different partner and, and the firm became just mine. And that was scary. So that was one of those things where I would have to come in every day with a smile plus in my face, really having no idea whether I'd be able to do this by myself, but just just that positivity of keeping it forward. And so, and since that time, seven years ago, I've grown it from 12 staff members, um, which were the ones that I retained in the partnership split to just over 30 and yeah, tripled the revenue. So it's um, more than tripled. So it's, it, it was a bit, it was a real leap of faith um, and thinking about what was the worst case scenario, worst case scenario, and this is where law is lucky, I guess, because we can be nimble. Worst case scenario is that I would have had to have made staff redundant, but I could still practice mm. by myself with, um, you know, one or two staff. That would, that was my worst case scenario, but I never really liked to look at that. I like to just keep moving forwards. What do you think it was? What do you think the bridge was from that? as you say, that uncertainty, uh, maybe winging it to tripling revenue and, and the success that you've had? Just sheer determination. Um, and I'm really competitive, um, but mostly with myself. So I like to see things. Um, I like things going forward. I like to, whenever I look at numbers, I'm, I'm liking to see a bigger number this time than what the number was before. Um, yeah, I just, I'm just really driven, I think, to create the best business that I can create for um, myself, my family, my staff, my clients, and that, that drives me every day. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not, not really content just to sit there doing the same, the same constantly the same. So, yeah, I, that, that was fine. 12 staff, whatever the turnover was then, that was fine but I just kind of keep edging, just want to do a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better every time. There's something, there's a concept in there that uh, that is interesting, I think, because we kind of, New Zealand business, small business owners are kind of beaten up for their lack of ambition sometimes. You know, you've got the beach, the, uh, the batch, the, the beamer and the boat kind of thing. Uh, do you, but do you notice a change in that? Do you notice that with the businesses that you're dealing with, that there is a level of ambition uh, there that is that is maybe different to what was 10 years ago? Yeah, I think so. And I think that even the kind of the small, medium business things changed a little bit too. There's, there's small business, but then medium business is actually what used to probably be slightly bigger business. And so... Um, yeah, I, th I think it probably has changed a little bit. I think I, I see in my clients, you know, drive and ambition and, and wanting to move forward, not just have content just to sit there and, and keep doing the same thing that they're doing. Um, yeah, I think I think unless you're constantly evolving, you just get left behind. And I think part of evolving, you need that kind of drive and ambition to evolve and look for new opportunities and new things because if you keep doing you know it's that like Einstein's definition of I think it was Einstein wasn't it insanity if you keep doing the same things and expecting a different result then um I, yeah you just and, and you can see it particularly in law um I think a lot of the firms that continue to practice in the same way or they they don't grow in fact they shrink and so I think you do need to be constantly involved evolving and in terms of the evolution, have you noticed something else happening with the clients that you are, that you were talking with? Like last year, it might have been because we were all kind of thrust into this uh, into this period where we 
started kind of looking at the blue sky and going for walks with our family and spending a little more time looking at the environment outside of the office. Um, mm. But for the first time, like last year in the mainstream, I, I started hearing more and more about donut, donut economics and other metrics for success in business. Are you seeing that as well? Like people are driven by a, a social and an environmental um, purpose as well as a financial one? Yeah, a little bit. I, I, to be honest, I haven't seen masses. I mean, people are obviously much more concerned with sustainability and that's kind of the buzzword, I guess. And um, and that's become really important, even from a recruitment perspective, having a sustainability policy, having a sustainability committee and actually doing those things, not just not just paying, paying lip service to it. So, so that kind of thing definitely is becoming um, more important, but I, it doesn't seem in my sphere to be um, I, I guess we're looking more in, in introverted what can we do in New Zealand like that, that's mm -hmm. part of it um, but I don't see that really overtly out there at the moment um, but maybe I just haven't had my eyes wide open to it either maybe it's just kind of happening um, yeah and in terms of in terms of, because we have been looking at more of what we can do internally in New Zealand in terms of supply chain and manufacturing and that kind of thing as well. Have you noticed any uh, any shift in, in, say, the in some of the sectors that you're dealing with? Like, do you get a sense that some sectors are just going to go through this, this incredible boom over the next couple of years? Yeah, definitely the construction industry. Um, so, and... Even some retailers are doing incredibly well, um, and but but yeah, definitely construction. That that's one that that's that's definitely booming. I think that I mean my personal view is it's a little bit like back in the eighties when I was a child, and um, I remember Dad going over on a, on a trip overseas, and we'd come from the South Island, small town, never would never really been overseas or hadn't been overseas, hadn't even been to the North Island, and um, Dad came home with like a and just from Australia but with a sweatshirt that he bought me from Target that had like something licensed on the front of it and so in those days like there was um it was really hard to get things from overseas everything was made in New Zealand uh and then when the world kind of opened up it was this amazing um just like it was it was amazing but I kind of feel like we're going back to our roots a little bit and I think that's fantastic um more conscious of New Zealand made more conscious about um, you know what we're importing from other countries hopefully more conscious about the stuff you know the quality of things as well so mm. back when I was a child you bought something you'd buy your tv and your tv was there for years you wouldn't just you, you know that my uncle was a tv repairman it would get fixed if it broke rather than just chucking it out and buying a new one so maybe we're hopefully we're reverting back to to some of that um, looking after ourselves um, yeah and surely that's got to be good for sustainability as well, even if you've got a TV that lasts 10 years as opposed to replacing it every couple of years, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Now, in terms of the world of in terms of the world of trust, so we've just gone through the biggest shakeup in the last 70 years for New Zealand trust legislation. Has that been a, has that been a, a really big deal in that world? It has been a massive deal, actually. The yeah, first time since 1956 that we've had a new Trusts Act. Or, um, it's been on the cards for 20-odd years. So I think it was 2002 that the Law Commission first put together its report on um, a review of trusts in New Zealand and trust law in New Zealand. But I do say to people it's been evolution rather than revolution. So it's not a sweeping away of the old and something new completely coming in. Um, what the Trust Act is trying to do is to, what's in its 
um, preambles that it's making the law more accessible so that if you want to find out what the duties and obligations are of trustees, instead of having to trawl through you know, 500 years of case law, you can go to the statute and it says there in nice plain English what the duties and obligations are of trustees. But I think that um, the big thing that's had lots of publicity has been information to beneficiaries and what information beneficiaries are entitled to. And once again, that's based on case law. So it's not some brand new concept to trust lawyers, but it's way more out there. Um, and so it has been a big thing for, for people to understand and, and think about and, and do I really need my trust anymore? And what does this mean for my family? Yeah. Now, I don't want to perpetuate any scaremongering that is out there because there seems to be a little bit about it and we can, we can talk about that a, a little bit. But, but can you give us a worst case scenario uh, in terms of that uh, added uh, transparency? I guess the worst case scenario could be, you know, a lot of people do have trust because they they want to protect their children from understanding the, their wealth. And um, so there's lots of different reasons for having trust and, and most of them to do with protection. And sometimes it's protecting people from themselves. And so worst case scenario would be um, a child who, or a beneficiary who's a child asking for the information, seeing what's actually there, what they potentially might receive some of one day and then not doing anything. And so not creating their own future and forging their own future, but relying on um, what's in the trust. That's the kind of thing that most people are concerned about. Um, just making, they want their children to do well for themselves because they are who they are, not because they have this trust fund sitting in the background. And that, yeah, that's the main, the main concern with that disclosure, the disclosure rules. What would, uh, I and mean, that's really understandable downside. What would have been some of the upsides that would have prompted this shift? You know, what was some of the? Yeah, the, the main reason is because the main duty and obligation of a trustee is to look after the trust assets for the beneficiaries. And so the premises of that change is that how can the beneficiaries know that the trustees are doing that job if there's no transparency, if they don't know um, what the what the trust is, has invested its assets in, if they, if they don't know what the um, income is from the trust or the expenses are, um, of the trust so that that's where it's coming from that sort of transparency so so you can hold the trustees accountable to do their job hmm. any other any other really fundamental shifts that uh, that are going to make a big difference to people do you think um i mean from a lawyer's perspective the other one the other one is that the uh perpetuities act has been abolished and what that means is that prior to January this year, uh, trust had a maximum period of 80 years uh, that you, that was the maximum time that you could hold assets on trust for. Um, it's a little bit simplistic, but that was it. They moved that to 125 because the uh, people's um, life expectancy has increased. And so that's that's been moved to 125 years. The, they've tidied up some of the provisions around what happens if a, if a trustee becomes incapacitated and that really needed to be tidied up because it was a, um, you, you basically had to go to court if you had an incapacitated trustee beforehand. And obviously, um, you know, a lot of people set up trust in the 90s, um, early 2000s. A lot of those people are now starting to get more elderly um, and, Unfortunately, we're seeing more dementia and, and things like that. So yeah. there's there's some there's been a bit of tidy up. Um, yeah, that's yeah. that's probably a couple of things. Yeah, you had a really uh, sad case study in that respect as well, where you had the power of attorney shifted because of incap incap 
capacitation, but then they didn't do anything for the trust side of things. So it just complicated yeah. uh, things that probably one of the hardest times, you know, when, when couples life. So it's, uh, that's cool. That's good that that's, that's shifted. There is a lot of, as I say, there's a lot of scaremongering and a lot of, like people are questioning whether whether there is value still in trust. What do you mm. think? I, say, I think that people should be constantly questioning whether they have their trust. And a lot of the trustee meetings that I do, that's, people will start off with the same thing year after year. Do I really need this trust? Um, there's still lots of really good reasons to have trusts. There's also lots of reasons that people set trusts up that no longer apply. So I think it's just a matter of um, constantly re-evaluating. Um, I often say to clients, it's a bit like life insurance. So if you've got small children, big debt, you'll need more of it. But as the kids grow and the debt shrinks, you need less of it. So same thing with trust. There might be a time in your life where a trust is really important, um, might even have two, might have three, but that might change as, as life moves on. But I think that there, there's a lot of people that have trust that don't need trust at all. And they're the ones that should be looking at them. I, I, sometimes I hear stories from clients, oh, my friends are really wealthy and they, they've got this and the next thing going on, but they're still thinking about winding up their trust those people should be taking advice um, because winding up might not be the option, but there's a lot of people who put their houses in trust and all they might have in their trust is a, is a house and going forward, that could actually be detrimental rather than beneficial for mm. them. What have, what, have, what have been some of the, the main motivators? I understand it's protecting, you know, if you run a business, you want to protect your personal mm. assets and that kind of thing. And there is some, uh, you know, people, people kind of work against residential uh, care as well. What have, what have been some of the main uh, motivations for getting into a trust that, that aren't relevant now? Say? So the residential care subsidy, the one that you just mentioned, um, that no longer, it's very, very unlikely that regardless of how long ago that you set your trust up, that you would qualify mm -hmm. for subsidy um, if they think you've got enough assets, you'll pay. Um, I think that there was there was a real feeling of um, my neighbours have got a trust, so maybe I should have one too, sort mm. of the me too, I guess, of trusts. So that that's not really a reason for having a trust. Although I'm saying that I think probably in the early 2000s, um, particularly in Auckland, you know, we went through a period of really high, you know, house prices were increasing rapidly and there are relationship property reasons why people might have had trust, making sure that what they passed on to their children was for their children. Trust mm. still really do help with that, but it's been eroded a little bit over the years with, with various um, cases and so forth. But still the main reasons for people setting up trust is still really valid. So if you're in business, if you're a director of a company, if you're holding assets um, that you want generations of families of your family to benefit from, like closely held company or holiday homes, that sort of thing. Or if you've got children with difficulties that might um, need to be protected from themselves, um, example would be a child with a drug issue and if he or she just received a big chunk of money, um, that would just be a disaster. So yeah, it does. It just helps cater for different beneficiaries. Um, even I have a few clients who've just got children that are hopeless with money and they want to benefit their kids but they don't want their kids to have massive big chunks of money so still lots of good reasons but probably that rest home subsidy one um, is mm. the one where I never advocated for it but I knew that secretly in the backs of the minds lots of their clients were thinking yeah. oh yeah and the rest home thing yeah mm. have you noticed that there is uh that that people are starting to think more and more about that intergenerational wealth kind of thing through and maybe trust as a vehicle for that but is that is that 
Are you noticing a shift in that motivation? Yes, I um, I think that I think people think a little bit like that. I have a view that, and I've seen this happen a number of times, that often you'll have children with quite diverging interests and circumstances. And I'm a little bit, I, I, I like to advise clients about what might, you know, back to that lawyer thing of the negative, um, but what might happen if you try and keep them there all in the same pool of assets. And so it's about thinking about different ways that you can still provide that sort of intergenerational um, retention of assets but without binding future generations in a way that just makes them fall out with each other because that often mm. is what happens if you try and tie it in too tightly so yeah there's um the, yeah there's still a bit of an impetus for that but it needs to be balanced with um what future generations might look like and I often say to clients too I think it's important to benefit people that you actually know mm. and so if you hold all this money for a you know, people that, you know, your great-great-grandchildren who you might not even meet. Does that put a smile on your face? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting point. Um, I, I know that this is a big, big tangent to go down, but when you're talking about how not to bind, you know, even if it's your children and you do have those divergent kind of uh, interests and, I mean, how do, you, how do you do it in a way that you create this foundation where they might be able to have a, a better step at life than you started with you want you want to create some capacity for them to go on but you don't want to bind them and you also don't want to make them lazy as well how do you balance that yeah that's a really good question um i mean one way is to set up trusts for the the children individually so that that your trust then passes to trust for the children later which mm. still gives them that protection um but allows for the diverging natures and interests of the children as well so they can still benefit um but it's not just giving them a big lump of cash um but also not tying them back to the whole family and one with that so that's 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 the best way of doing it but also, um, with trusts, you, so you have your trustee, then you have what we call a memorandum of wishes or memorandum of guidance, and that's a bit like a will for the trust. And so my job as a lawyer is not just to put the mechanics in, but to try and build some emotion into that memorandum of guidance so that you can tell a story about you know, how, how the money was created and why it's important that um, it's protected in this way for future generations so it's not just like this will happen that will happen the next thing will happen there's a kind of a story there and um, a, one of my uh, a friend of mine who's also in this area um, his, his name's Lindsay Pope and he's talked to me a lot about because um, I need to credit him with this because it's not my idea because it's a good one but about give, making people good receivers so grateful receivers um, and good givers, good givers, but grateful receivers, and trying to get away from that whole sense of entitlement. Mm. Cool. All right. Uh, I'm conscious that I've used up a lot of six-minute blocks, uh, so you need to get <laughs> on with your day. But one last, one last question. Maxie, maybe two. But are you are you optimistic? I know we've we've been talking a lot about the downside, but are you optimistic over the next about the next couple of years in New Zealand? Yeah, I am. I am. I think. Um, I think our New, New Zealanders indomitable spirit will, uh, has risen already to the challenges of what we've been thrown over the last 12 months. And I mean, we are in the most beautiful place in the world. And every day I wake up and I think about how lucky we are in comparison to so many places around the world. And 
my personal view is that New Zealand will become a little bit like the Monaco of the South Pacific. So mm. it'll be um, such a desirable place for people to, to want to be that, you know, it could push property prices even further because I think it would just be so desirable. Um, so I'm really optimistic. Actually, uh, this is probably more of a complicated question than, than I thought I was initially going to end on. But, you know, when you, when you kind of talk about, when we were looking at the beginning of last year, uh, all of the bank economists were talking about how everything was going to fall off the cliff, you know, mass unemployment, property prices dropping, uh, you know, everything was buggered pretty much. But it, in a lot of ways, it went the other way. And there are a lot of sectors, mm. I know that suffered, but there were a lot of sectors that did really, that did really well as well. Um, what, do you think that there is a do you think that there is a danger in terms of um, in terms of public sentiment being being really driven by the negativity of the headlines and uh, you know that 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 I, I guess the, the the negativity really driving as I say and creating that a self fulfilling prophecy do you think we need to pull back from um, being you know reading the news and yeah and, and listening to yeah. the media. Yeah, I do. I do. And I think that um, oh, I think some of the, the way that media, I, I get frustrated, to be honest with you, some, when I read news um, and that it's just a series of tweets and opinions rather than journalistic um, where someone's actually gone and researched and actually presents, you know, something which is, is researched rather than just a whole lot of opinion from different places. It's like a, a, like a patchwork of quotes or a patchwork of tweets or, and mm. I find that frustrating and the headline, and I think sometimes too, because often we're looking at media on our phones. And so you just see the negative headlines because that's what they're attention grabbing. Um, so I think there is a real danger that we could, you know, that we, possibly because we are small as well, um, that we can get drawn into this, um, yeah, drawn into whatever's in the news on that day. So take property as an example. So often the market is a little bit driven by a reporter of house prices double here or house prices down 2% here. And so that kind of, it's a bit like standing on the scales, isn't it? If you, if the number's a bit smaller, <laughs> then that makes you feel happy for the day. And if it's bigger, then you feel, well. Oh. And so that's a little bit, um, I find sometimes the, the media can be, um, or the press, probably the press media can, can be a bit, um, bit like that. And we, I think we do need to sort of balance, be a bit more balanced in our view. And, 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 um, and maybe the reportage could be a little, a bit more investigative would probably be quite good and talk to people from different sectors and different um and different with different opinions and different ideas and, and come up with something a bit more balanced yeah brilliant all right one last question probably but what's the best piece of advice you've been given oh um i find this question really hard um I think well, for, this is a real, a very personal answer. So the best piece of advice for me that I was ever given actually was from a, a friend of my, um, a family friend who, when I was leaving school and wasn't sure what I was going to do, and I thought that I would probably go and get, try and get a job in a bank, you know, like a good job in the bank. Um, and he really encouraged me to go to university. And um, yeah, I was the first person in my family to go to university and I really like I still um really credit him with helping me come to that decision and, and go on and um 
you know, that's had such a knock-on effect for so many things. Like I wouldn't meet my husband, wouldn't mm. be doing this kind of job, wouldn't be living in Auckland, all those things. So that's a bit of a personal answer rather than something that it would actually pass on easily to someone else. But I, I think what he was meaning by that was just do the best for you that you can. Mm. So um, if it's a little bit more hard work, what does it matter? Just, you know, stretch yourself as much as you can. Mm. That's cool advice. That's really cool. Do you, uh, so I'll just add another question to that. Um, but do you often think about, do you think about your life like a sliding doors moment? You know, what if you hadn't heard that piece of advice and what if you hadn't followed that, that piece of yeah, advice? Yeah, totally. Totally. And in fact, I never saw myself as being the career woman. I always thought I'd be the stay-at-home mum. Um, and it surprises me every day that that I wasn't. My husband stays at home. Um, our kids are 11 and, and 8 now, so he doesn't, you know, they're at school and, and things. But, um, yeah, totally. I, 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 this, is, this is not who I thought I was going to be, that's mm. for sure. Has there been sacrifice in that as uh, well? Though? Yeah, 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 there has been. Um, I really found it hard to go back to work after I had my first child I went back when he was three months old um and I really struggled with that I was you know googling houses cheaper places in New Zealand thinking about how we could make it work so I could stay at home um that that was hard but it's come out absolutely fine so it's yeah and and it's worked out really really well um I probably knew after a while once I got past that knew that actually this is this is what I love and I'm I'm I mean, it's a bit cliched, but I am a better mother for mm. being able to do what I do as well. It, it balances me. Sorry, I'm hopeless at wrapping up, by the way, but I've got another one <laughs> on the back of that. But, you know, we when when we often talk about diversity and inclusion um, for a lot of our companies at board and governance level, a lot of it really comes back to the, to the flexibility as well to allow uh, career mums to be able to uh, juggle um obligations within the office but then go and do school runs when they need to which in a, in a traditional kind of firm might might be frowned upon by by partners yeah. but is that has that been a really important thing for you to to embed that kind of flexibility within the within the structure of your firm hugely and my thing has always been i want to do i want to be flexible so i want to be able to nip off to um watch the swimming sports or go to assembly to see one of my boys get a certificate or, or or, or what it, pick them up, whatever it's going to be. And so I, I would never do that without my staff being allowed to do exactly the same thing. I'm not allowed, that makes it sound a bit autocratic, but without encouraging my staff to do um, exactly that. And I talk about that in interviews with staff as well because that flexibility is so important to me and I really want them to have that as well. Um, I think it's getting better probably everywhere, but we, I mean, here we're just hugely flexible. So if you have to leave at three to go pick up kids on one day, I don't expect you to make up the time. It just, it's a trust thing. It's just, you've got to make it work for you. I have to make it work for me. Um, yeah. And, and I think if you give that little bit to your staff, you get a whole heap back. Have you noticed that? Like, do you quantify like, when you, when you allow that level of trust? Have you noticed that there is a, that there's a shift in productivity? Well, I guess you have because you've tripled the revenue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people. I think they. Um, that's. I often get that feedback. I just the flexibility is really important to me. They often give me that feedback, and uh, I think it definitely there's the, the productivity. That's the easy thing about law, right? You can measure people's productivity pretty easily because it's mm. all there and billable hours, and the productivity is never falling 